This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Jimmy Dore Show, The Rachel Maddow Show, Counterspin, The Tom Hartman Program, The Young Turks, The Daily Show, Countdown with Keith Olbermann, and The Show with a bonus video clip for our Apple, iOS, and Android app users from The Daily Show. The world can be a frustrating place. With so much suffering and injustice all over the globe, it can be overwhelming to even the most mildly bleeding heart. That's why you need Democracil, the pharmaceutical solution that helps relieve you of the courage of your convictions so you can feel like yourself again. Start every negotiation from a position of compromise with Democracil. Continue to look the other way while gays in the military are treated like second-class citizens with Democracil. Appoint an economic team indistinguishable from the one that caused the biggest financial collapse since the Great Depression with Democracil. Side effects may include dizziness, nausea, spinal rubberizing, and loss of appetite. Ask your doctor about Democracil if Joe Lieberman will let you. Democracil. Why stand for something when it's so much easier to lay down? Good evening and thanks for joining us tonight on what will go down as a red letter day in the history of the Barack Obama presidency. The president today convening a hastily called press conference to try to tamp down the political crisis he is in after announcing the very, 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 very generous deal he offered to congressional Republicans on taxes. Rebutting criticism from the left that he gave too much, that he traded away too many bad policies for not enough in the way of good policies. The president today stepped up to that microphone and he talked a lot about fighting. I will continue to fight before the American people to make the point that the Republican position is wrong. And uh, you know, uh, I will be happy to see the Republicans test uh, whether or not uh, I'm itching for a fight on a whole range of issues. Uh, I suspect they will find I am. Uh, and I think the American people will be m on my side on a whole bunch of these fights. We're going to keep on having this debate. We're going to keep on having this battle. And I'm happy to have that battle. I don't see how the Republicans win that argument. I understand the desire for a fight. I'm sympathetic to that. I'm as opposed to the high-end tax cuts today as I've been for years. In the long run, we simply can't afford them. And when they expire in two years, I will fight to end them. I will fight to end them. The president today declaring himself a combatant, a man who is willing to fight, fight, fight for what he believes, one who is not only capable of political combat, but in his words, one who is itching for it. 
He said in his calm, collected way that he is itching for a fight with Republicans, which made it all the more remarkable when he pivoted sharply to actually looking like he was itching for a fight, raising his voice, getting sarcastic, and as animated as he has ever appeared in a presidential con a pre press conference while he denounced the supposed purity and sanctimoniousness of who I guess he sees as his real political enemies. You know, so, th so this notion that somehow, um, you know, we are willing to compromise too much uh, reminds me of the debate that we had during health care. Th th this is the public option debate all over again. So I pass a signature piece of legislation where we finally get health care for all Americans, something that Democrats had been fighting for for a hundred years, but because there was a provision in there that they didn't get that would have affected maybe a couple of million people, even though we got health insurance for 30 million people and the potential for lower premiums for 100 million people, that somehow that was a sign of weakness and compromise. Now, if that's the standard by which we are measuring uh, success or core principles, then let's face it, we will never get anything done. People will have the satisfaction of having a purist position and no victories for the American people. And we will be able to feel good about ourselves and sanctimonious about how pure our intentions are and how tough we are. And in the meantime, the American people are still seeing themselves not able to get health insurance because of pre-existing condition. Or not being able to pay their bills because their unemployment insurance ran out. That can't be the measure of, of how we think about our public service. That can't be the measure of what it means to be a Democrat. The president today as animated and visibly angry as we have seen him as president, directing that ire at liberals, not only denouncing liberals as sanctimonious and in it for their own satisfaction with themselves rather than the good of the country, but also defending his approach to dealing with Republicans against the liberal critique at least the liberal critique as it was described by the White House press corps. Mr. President, what do you say to Democrats who say you're rewarding Republican obstruction here? You yourself used in your opening statement they were unwilling to budge on this. A lot of progressive Democrats are saying they're unwilling to budge right. and you're asking them to get off the fence and budge. Why should they be rewarding Republican obstruction? Well, let, let, me, let me use a, a couple of analogies. Um, I've said before that I felt that the middle class tax cuts were being held hostage to the high end tax cuts. Uh, I think it's tempting not to negotiate with hostage takers uh, unless the hostage gets harmed. Then uh, people will uh, question the wisdom of that strategy. In this case, the hostage was the American people and I was not willing to see them get harmed. This, again, this is not an abstract political fight. This is not isolated here in Washington. There are people right now who, when their unemployment insurance runs out, will not be able to pay the bills. There are, there are, there are folks right now who are just barely making it on the paycheck that they've got. And when that paycheck gets smaller on January 1st, 
they're going to have to scramble to figure out how am I going to pay all my bills? How am I going to keep on making the payments for my child's college tuition? What am I going to do exactly? Now, I could have enjoyed the battle with Republicans over the next month or two. Uh, because as I said, the American people are on our side. Th this is not a situation in which I have failed to persuade the American people of the rightness of our position. I know the polls. The polls are on our side on this. We weren't operating from a position of political weakness with respect to public opinion. The problem is that Republicans feel that this is the single most important thing that they have to fight for as a party. And in light of that, it was going to be a protracted battle, and they would have a stronger position next year than they do currently. But if I may follow, aren't you mm -hmm. telegraphing, though, a negotiating strategy of how the Republicans can beat you in negotiations all the way through the next year because they can just stick to their guns, stay united, be unwilling to budge, to use your words, and force you to capitulate? Uh, I don't think so. And, and the reason is because this is a very unique circumstance. This is a very unique circumstance. Next time Republicans want something, they're not just going to try the same say no to everything strategy. Why wouldn't they do that? Uh, how do these negotiations affect negotiations or talks with Republicans about uh, raising the debt limit? Because it would seem um, that they have a significant amount of leverage over the White House now going in. Was there ever any attempt by the White House to include the raising the debt limit as part of this package? Uh, when you say that uh, it would seem they'll have a significant uh, amount of leverage over the White House, what do you mean? Just in the sense that, that you know, they'll say essentially we're not going to raise the, uh, the, we're not going to agree to it unless the, you know, White House is, is um, able to or willing to agree to significant spending cuts across the board that probably go deeper and further than what you're willing to do. Well, what, lever I mean, what leverage would you have? In look, the here's my expectation, uh, and I'll take John Boehner at his word, that nobody, Democrat or Republican, uh, is willing to see the full faith and credit of the United States government uh, collapse, that that would not be a good thing to happen. You're going to take John Boehner's word for that? Here's the thing. I know liberals are very frustrating. But is frustration with liberals so all-consuming that the White House really has not noticed all the Republicans in Washington saying they are perfectly willing to see the, the full faith and credit of the United States government collapse? They're perfectly willing to default on the national debt to make a political point? Will you vote to increase the debt ceiling? Uh, no, I won't. I'm going to vote against raising the national debt ceiling. We simply can't continue to mortgage the future of our unborn children and grandchildren. It's not fair. It's not American. It's a form of taxation without representation. I just don't see this next Congress uh, raising the debt ceiling, uh, but it's certainly a challenge that we're going to have to deal with. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of things in play during the slam duck session. And so you think that's out. something that you'll probably vote against? Raising? Yes. Will you filibuster any attempt to raise the debt limit? I think exactly what tactics we'll use will have to be discussed, and I do plan on working with others to see what the best strategy is. You need some people with principle in Washington who will stand up and say enough's enough. The president today pretty boldly asserted that no Republicans are going to vote against raising the debt ceiling. 
president today boldly asserted that this negotiation on tax policy should not be seen as a template for future negotiations with Republicans because for this one, Republicans were holding the well-being of the American people hostage to get their way. And that certainly won't happen again. The president today also turned withering fire on liberals on the Democratic base for expecting too much. Turn that withering fire on liberals for expecting too much from a White House that for another hot minute has big Democratic majorities in both the House and the Senate. The president today also asserted, bottom line, that what he secured in this latest deal that Republicans trumpeted and complimented him on today, that this GOP-approved plan was, at its base, a good deal for the American people. Was it? Was it a good deal? Finally, after exhorting Obama to finally distance himself from liberals, you'd think the corporate media got what they wanted when the White House tax deal with Republicans was announced on December 7th. There was the spin, constant media references to the deal as a compromise, for instance, though by any type of scorecard one would have to say that the Republicans got much more than they gave. Some news stories talked about the revival of the estate tax, but failed to make it clear that it was coming back in a highly diluted form, more in line with the Republican plan that had been discussed several months earlier. On NBC's Today Show on December 7th, Aaron Burnett referred to the deal as an early Christmas present for Wall Street, but then tried to spin tax breaks for the wealthy and an ensuing stock rally as good for everyone. So across the board gains, something that could benefit a lot of Americans with capital gains and dividend taxes staying low, the half of Americans that own stocks get a benefit there as well. This is familiar Republican spin. The Bush White House used to say the very same thing. It's awful journalism, though. As the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities pointed out back in 2006, the benefits of low rates on dividends and capital gains flow overwhelmingly to the wealthy. More than half of capital gains and dividend income goes to households with incomes over $1 million. Households earning less than 50000 get about 4%. So, yes something for everyone it's gonna take a little time while you're waiting like a factory line i'll ride across the park backseat on the 79 so let's presuppose for a moment that you actually enjoy this show. Now, if that's true, please consider supporting it with a $5 monthly membership. I actually quit my job as a climate activist to pursue this show full-time because this is where I felt like my talents could best be put to use and I could have the biggest impact on the world. But I really need your support to keep going. I produce 10 shows a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule posting shows at least every third day. So if all that is worth 5 bucks a month or as little as $55, a year, a little discount for you, please consider signing up for a membership at bestoftheleft.com. Members even receive bonus audio and video content on top of the rest that doesn't make it into the final cut of the show. So please, again, check out the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support.
What they're doing is they're handing an exploding pinata to, to President Obama. First of all, people whose unemployment goes beyond 99 weeks get nothing in this. Nothing. Now, the conservatives are complaining, the people who have been on unemployment for 50 or 60 weeks, and it's running out now because there's an extension beyond the normal, I, I think it's 38 weeks, 39 weeks. Well, this is like you know, David Ferdoso today, the, the right local right winger here in D.C. says, what have Republicans given up on this deal? Well, first, the deal extends for 13 months, the 99-week unemployment benefits regime, instead of the 39 weeks that employers actually pay for. If you're a conservative, this slightly irks you. I mean, really, 99 weeks? So, you know, okay, the conservatives are upset that unemployed people are going to get unemployment benefits, which, by the way, they paid into for years and years and years and years and years and years and years. But it does nothing for people beyond 99, nothing for the 99ers. And it should. If we're going to borrow $70 billion in a year, if we're going to borrow $700 billion in a decade to give to people who make millions and billions of dollars. I mean, if we would even consider that, why wouldn't we consider a fraction of that, maybe about half of that, to say to anybody who has qualified for unemployment insurance and is still unemployed, you can still get an unemployment check. People are losing their homes. They're, they're having divorces because of the stress in their marriages as a consequence of, of being unemployed. Their, 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 you know, child abuse goes up during periods of, of economic stress. The BBC did a, did a, a brilliant article, a brilliant study. You've heard me talk about this many times. If you've listened to the show for years, you've heard me talk about it over and over again. The BBC did a study over a hundred year period of suicide rates in, in Great Britain and Australia. And what they found was that had conservatives never been in power in those two countries, 20,000 people would still be alive today. That's how much suicide rates go up when conservatives come into power. Because not everyone is born with, the, with, with, you know, wealthy parents, good connections, nice neighborhoods, or an IQ over 100. 100 is the average, which means half of us are below that. Which means not everybody you know, has the, 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 the instant ability to say, I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps. And for some reason, the conservatives say, oh, no, we're not all in this together. Somebody can't figure out how to run a little business, eh, screw them. Can't find a job, bad eh, tough luck. Job went to China, hey, it's going to make Carly Fiorina another $40 million. So, you know, here's a conservative complaining about the fact that unemployment is going to be extended for unemployed people. But he says that's an acceptable price to pay because we're getting so many goodies. Now, earlier today, I, I talked to Dan Pfeiffer, the communications director for the White House. And he said, basically, there are two options. 
The first option is that you do nothing and the tax cuts expire and the unemployment benefits expire and people are screwed. And the second option is to do what President Obama has done, which is work out a compromise with the Republicans so that you can actually get something done that that extends tax cuts to middle class people and extends unemployment benefits. And, you know, a nice binaural choice, right? A a binary, a bifurcated, whatever, you know, a two-part choice. And this is where the conversation picked up. There's no question that this is a very good deal. We need to get a deal that ensures that middle-class families, working-class families, not only don't face a tax increase, but uh, we're able to do some things that help the economy in the long run. And that's what this job does. That, that's Dan, I would, I would submit to you that there's a third option, and, and it's the option that, that, well, here, let me just, if, if I may have 10 seconds here, here it Absolutely. is. Okay. Your, your- These economic royalists, Complain that we seek to overthrow the institutions of America. What they really complain of is that we seek to take away their power. Our allegiance and our allegiance to American institutions requires the overthrow of this kind of power. Why is the president not talking like that? Well, I, I think that that is an excellent speech and a very historic speech. The um, we could. You're right. There is a third option. The third option would be which is the same as the first option, which is to allow the taxes to go up and then spend the next several weeks and months making a political case to the American people about. Uh, why this is Republicans' fault? Do you really do you really think that if you just let these tax cuts expire, and then President Obama goes on TV and does that kind of speech and says that we're going to put you know we've got legislation it's already been it's already been passed by the House repassed the last legislation that, that Pelosi sent out of the House to the Senate and say you guys are you going to vote for for tax cuts for middle class people yes or no. That they would, you really think they would not back down? I would, it, it, they may eventually back down, but you would go months and months and months before that happened. And every day that we were on the floor making these political, floor of the Senate making these political points, unemployed Americans would get no benefits. Middle class Americans would have a higher tax bill. The economy. Wait a minute, would, why does this have to, okay, I was talking about tax cuts. Let's talk about unemployment. Don't you think that he could go? We will just stop right there. I, 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 you know, I, I was making the same point. I don't want to prolong Dan's agony, and, and I'm not trying to um, in any way diminish him. I'm, I'm, uh, I appreciate his, his willingness to come on our program, the communications director for the White House. And I just you know, I want to be clear about that. And I believe, I genuinely believe, that my advice to President Obama, and it's not just mine, it's virtually the entire Progressive Caucus in Congress, and and a whole bunch of other folks as well. More, 51% of Americans who contributed to Obama's campaign say, said in a poll last night, 51% said that they would not contribute to his 2012 presidential re-election campaign if this compromise goes through. 74% oppose it going through. 
said, and these are just the people who contributed money to his campaign. I'm telling you, this is a bad deal for Obama. This is going to hurt him and his presidency. with economic advisor George Leslie, uh, economic advisor to Barack Obama. He's calling from inside the White House. Mr. Leslie, thanks for taking time out. How are you today? I'm doing fine, Jimmy. How are you? I'm doing okay. We could be a little better. We're a little perplexed about the negotiating tactics that the Obama White House used in the, when they were negotiating with the Republicans over this tax deal. Uh, it seems that you guys gave away something without getting anything back. Well, Jimmy, I know that's how it looks, but what you really got to... Can, can you just tell me can you just tell me how you went into these negotiations? Well, we announced a pay freeze for federal employees to gain the political upper hand. Well, ordering a pay freeze for federal employees, isn't that a Republican idea? That's right, Jimmy. It sure is. But you put it into practice. Why, why would you do that? Well, we did it as a negotiating tactic. You know, sort of a preemptive strike against the Republicans, showing the American people that we were the party ready to reach across the aisle and work in a bipartisan manner. What did you get in return for pushing that Republican policy? What do you mean, get in return? You know, well, usually in a negotiation, you give up something in order to get something. So you gave them a pay freeze for federal employees. What did you get in return? <laughs> okay, Jimmy, I'm not sure I'm following you. We did that to outmaneuver them and show the American people that we were ready and willing to compromise. Okay, so what did the Republicans give up to make that compromise? They wouldn't give up anything. So we had to meet them in the middle and implement their Fed pay freeze idea. So now you're just implementing Republican policies outright? It's called compromise, Jimmy. When are you crazies on the left going to understand that? Just because you have a majority in the House and a majority in the Senate and the White House, and, and have overwhelming public opinion behind you and your policies, doesn't mean that you get to do what you want and what the Democrats want and what the American people want. No, I'm pretty sure that's exactly what it means. Jimmy, there is a minority party called the Republicans. Ever heard of them? I mean, we have to negotiate with them, or they can filibuster any legislation in the Senate. So that means that they're pretty much running things in Washington. Wait, wait a minute. So you're telling me that the party that is less popular, the party with less representatives in Congress, they're the ones with the power? That's how our system is set up. Wow. Well, let me ask you one last question. When are you guys going to be running things then? Ugh, I am not sure. <laughs> See, when the Republicans are in power, they just push their policies through without our input and never bend. Like, remember the first six years of the Bush administration? Mm. Two, count them, two wars! <laughs> and then they cut taxes during two wars. God! Deregulated business and banking, ordered war crimes, illegal wiretaps? 
man, those guys really know how to get it done, don't they? Okay, George Leslie, economic advisor to Barack Obama. Thanks for telling us how you guys negotiate. And I don't get this and I know why. You see, sometimes things are just beyond control. But I don't mind. But I'm not surprised to find that you do. I'm not surprised to find that you Yesterday, I told you that uh, President Obama uh, was doing himself a great disservice and the party uh, by agreeing to this Republican proposal on tax cuts because then since he's agreed to it, he's now going to have to defend it. He's going to have to defend it now to get it passed, and he's going to have to defend it for the next two years because he's the one who made the deal. And so he'll be stuck in the position of defending the Republican ideas. And I said that that is a hidden cost in this capitulation. Uh, and uh, and I said it when he says he's going to fight two years later on this, so it's a bit of a joke because one, why don't you fight now? And two, by that time you'll have spent two years defending the Republican position. And unfortunately, I was massively right. Let me tell you what's happened today. Here we go. First, uh, on Good Morning America, David Axelrod comes out. I'm sorry, on the Today Show on NBC, he came out and said that if you if that the Democrats don't vote for this proposal, if they don't vote for tax cuts for the rich, it would be quote borderline immoral. So now, if you don't do tax cuts for the rich, you're borderline immoral. That is the top strategist for the White House. Just getting warms up. On Huffington Post, uh, several uh, White House allies have talked uh, uh, off the record to them. Here is a direct quote. Uh, White House allies saying, Are congressional Democrats going to hold emergency unemployment aid, new tax cuts for the middle class and the working poor, as well as existing expiring middle class tax cuts that would affect hundreds of millions hostage because they want to take away tax cuts from a small group of rich people? Understand what happened there? All of a sudden, the White House is arguing that the Democrats are the hostage takers. That you would get all these lovely things like unemployment insurance, middle class taxes, etc. if the Democrats would stop taking hostages. Can you get a bigger flip-flop? Can you get somebody to argue the Republican position any better than the White House is doing it right now? What did I tell you? I mean, instantly, full boat, in all the way. You know what? Right before the show, Larry Summers talking to reporters. Top economic advisor to the president for now. Came out and said, here, I'll give you the exact quote. If they, the Democrats, don't pass this bill in the next couple of weeks, it will materially increase the risk that the economy would stall out and we would have a double dip. So now, if you don't do tax cuts for the rich, the Democrats are responsible for a double dip recession. Total, utter, massive capitulation. But not just capitulation. Now, they are doing the Republicans bidding for them. They are making their arguments for them. They're blaming the Democrats for actually trying to fight back against tax cuts for the rich. <laughs> this guy is the worst! Because now he's, look, 
These tax cuts, so you understand, are deeper than the original Bush tax cuts. Yes, you get the original Bush tax cuts so that the, you, the top 2% pay less in income tax. But you get a deeper estate tax cut. It goes from 55% to 35%, the estate tax. Okay, So a huge cut there, right? Furthermore, capital gains, dividend tax, carried interest, these are all the taxes that the very rich pay. Okay. And they paid on accumulated wealth, not even their income. So that all gets cut to 15%. So the richest people in the country pay 15%, much lower rate than you pay, than I paid, than the rest of America pays, and the middle class pays. This is insanity. And now the White House is full-blown arguing to the world that, hey, if the Democrats don't agree to these massive, gigantic, more-than-Bush tax cuts... Well, then they're holding people hostage, they're going to cause a double dip, and they are immoral. Now, the Republicans couldn't have dreamed of a president this good, because not only do they get everything they want, probably more than they ever dreamed of, but on top of that, they get a Democratic president making their best arguments for them. In fact, go, let's go to Karl Rove. Karl Rove says, quote, this is to Politico. The fact that these have been identified as the right policies by an administration that has had a knee-jerk response that if Bush promulgated it, we have to be against it. Well, it's a recognition of how sound these policies are and how necessary they are. In other words, Karl Rove saying, hey, look, here's Obama agreeing. We had the best policies. We were right. Tax cuts for the rich are awesome. The Democrats were wrong. And I would like to introduce my president, Barack Obama, to make that point for me. Bill O'Reilly continues on the same exact vein. Let's go to clip number one. Well, first of all, good for President Obama. Good for him. Yeah. He did the right thing for the country by backing away from raising taxes on the affluent and small business owners. The president knew that would not pass in the Senate, and a stalemate would have caused a tax rise on all Americans. Now there's a chance that tight money might loosen up and business might start expanding again. That is the only way out of this bad economic mess we're in. But the ideologues on the far left are not interested in any of that. They want income redistribution and the economy be damned. The president then went on to say that the deal he made with the Republicans will likely stimulate the economy. So my question is, then why did you oppose the deal up till now, Mr. President? Booyah. Mr. Obama sounded like a supply cider today, did he not? There comes a time when every president has to do what's best for the folks or perish politically. And Barack Obama stuck up for us today. The American economy obviously needs to improve. Massive government spending on economic stimulus has not worked thus far. So now the folks will have more money to spend. Yeah, folks like Rupert Murdoch, his boss, who are millionaires and billionaires. And look at what he said there. The president did our bidding. Okay. And he said, hey, look, Mr. President, if you think we're so right as you're arguing now, why didn't you agree to it earlier? The minute you agree with them, they use it against you. And by the way, in the Senate now, aides are talking to reporters and saying, oh my God, they, uh, the White House is pushing polls on us, trying to convince us, and then have us tell the American people that actually tax cuts for the rich are really popular. Here's another quote from an aide. Uh, he says, quote, the White House now wants us to defend extending the Bush tax cuts, saying it's not just good enough that they have spent out all their minions from the White House to make the Republican position, but they are demanding that the Democratic senators also agree with the Republicans, bow their heads, and make the case for it. Oh, hell no, man. 
oh, I, I cannot wish Bernie Sanders and the rest who want to block this bill greater luck. Oh, okay, with Godspeed, man. Please, please, whatever you do, defeat the president. Defeat President Obama, who is 100% sold out to the Republicans here and is going to end the rich and is going to give them the tax cuts that they have been dying for and that they couldn't even get sometimes under Republican presidents. Oh, hell no. No, no, no. This president is certainly not. I mean, it depends on what you call a Democrat. I mean, if you think this is a Democrat, then I'm definitely against the Democrats. Because the Democrats are, are wolf in sheep's clothing. They're the good cop, bad cop, as I've been explaining to you. They're the good cop, but they have the same exact goal. That the rich and the powerful get richer and more powerful. And he better not call himself a progressive. And he's got people on TV today arguing, how could you possibly be against this deal? What a lovely deal it is. If you're a billionaire, it is a dream come true. You couldn't have asked for a better deal than this. Santa baby. the announcement on Monday that President Obama had reached an agreement with congressional Republicans to extend the Bush tax cuts, even for the very wealthy, gracias, in return for unemployed people being allowed to continue uh, living, <laughs> Democrats may have painted themselves into somewhat of a rhetorical corner. Republicans are willing to hold hostage the middle class tax cut so they can get a tax cut for the very, very wealthy. Republicans are holding hostage. Literally holding middle class taxpayers hostage. They are holding everything hostage. It's almost like the question of do you negotiate with terrorists? Yes, almost like that. <laughs> almost. That is if you have no idea what the word almost means. <laughs> so why did the president then negotiate with almost terrorists and literal hostage takers. What was so unique about this tax situation? It's tempting not to negotiate with hostage takers uh, unless the hostage gets harmed. Then uh, people will uh, question the wisdom of that strategy. In this case, the hostage was the American people and I was not willing to see them get harmed. So you would not negotiate with hostage takers unless they threaten to harm the hostages. <laughs> Are you familiar with the hostage captor dynamic? <laughs> Have you seen Dog Day Afternoon? See, um, threatening to harm the hostages, pretty much the only arrow in the hostage taker quiver. <laughs> Mr. President, you will give us what we want. Or the hostages get ice cream. <laughs> and then I will let them go, unless they want more ice cream. <laughs> That's right, I will give them a Sunday bar. <laughs> by the way, by giving in, doesn't this send a subtle message that if Republicans want to get their way, they need to take the American people hostage? 
by saying they won't act on any legislation unless you promise, um, I don't know, let's say two months from now not to raise the debt ceiling. How do these negotiations affect negotiations or talks to Republicans about uh, raising the debt limit? My expectation is, is that uh, we will have tough negotiations around the budget, but that ultimately we can arrive at a position that is keeping the government open, but you know, once uh, John Boehner is sworn in as a speaker, then he's going to have responsibilities to govern. Uh, you, you can't just stand on the sidelines and be a bomb thrower. <laughs> right. Why throw bombs? This hostage thing is gold, Jerry. <laughs> As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. Finally tonight, as promised, a special comment on the tax compromise. To paraphrase Churchill again, let me begin by saying the most unpopular and most unwelcome thing, that we have sustained a defeat without a war, the consequences of which will travel far with us along our road. We should know that we have passed an awful milestone in our history when the whole equilibrium of American politics and policy have been deranged, and that the terrible words have, for the time being, been pronounced against this administration. Thou art weighed in the balance and found wanting. In exchange for selling out a principal campaign pledge and the people to whom and for whom it was made, in exchange for betraying the truth that the idle and corporate rich of this country have gotten unprecedented and wholly indefensible tax cuts for a decade, in exchange for giving the idle and corporate rich of this country two more years to accumulate still more and more vast piles of personal wealth which, which they can buy and sell everybody else, in exchange for extending what he spent the weeks before the midterms, calling tax cuts for millionaires and billionaires to people who have proved without a scintilla of doubt, without even a fig leaf of phony effort to make it look like they would do otherwise, that they will keep the money for themselves. In exchange for injecting new vigor into the infantile, moronic, disproved for a decade, three-card Monty game of an economic theory purveyed by these treacherous and ultimately traitorous Republicans, that tax cuts for the rich will somehow lead to job creation. Even though if that had ever been true in the slightest, the economy would not be where it is today. In exchange for giving tax cuts for the rich, which the nation cannot afford, and extending their vintage through the next election, and thus promising at best a reenactment of this whole sorry, amoral, degrading spectacle during the 2012 presidential campaign when the sides will be climbing over each other to again extend these cuts. In exchange for this searing and transcendent capitulation, the president got just 13 months of extended benefits for those unemployed less than 100 weeks. And he got nothing, absolutely nothing, for those unemployed for longer than 99ers. This the administration is celebrating 
taking the victims of Republican economic policy, taking the living, breathing proof that the Bush tax cuts for the rich do not create jobs, and putting economic bullseyes on their backs as of next December. On the one hand, unaffordable tax breaks for the beneficiaries of the Bush tax cuts made ever more permanent as they threatened to suck $4 trillion out of government revenues in the next decade. On the other hand, an insufficient, dead-end unemployment solution for Americans who would actually work for a living, a solution made ever more temporary. And we're hearing nothing about those 99ers, even though the numbers of them will balloon from 2 million to 4 million or more by next December, even with this deal. Even though just last Thursday, the president's own Council of Economic Advisors reiterated the reality that the easiest way to create jobs and keep jobs is to make sure that the unemployed continue to have money to spend. The unemployed, unlike the rich, whom this president has just bowed to, are in fact the job creators. They do not have investment portfolios to expand. They do not have vast savings into which to stuff the government checks. They have to spend the money. And the council reported last week that when someone becomes a 99er, his or her household loses at least one-third of its income. And where the 99er was the sole breadwinner, that's four households out of ten, they lose nine-tenths of their income. The economy is surprisingly simple. If business and the rich won't spend and the middle class can't spend, the only factor left to keep pushing money into the insatiable maw of capitalism is the government. So, should the government give the money to the rich who keep it or to the not rich who spend it? Apparently this president does not know the answer to that question, even though he has his own Council of Economic Advisors. Mr. President, for these meager crumbs you have given up costly, insulting, divisive, destructive tax cuts for the rich, and you have given in to Republican blackmail, which will be followed by more Republican blackmail. Of course, it's not just tax cuts for the rich that you've given up. There's also your new temporary payroll tax holiday, establishing a precedent that the way money is pumped into Social Security should be negotiated and traded off, and making it just that much easier to gut Social Security later on. And oh, by the way, in the middle of a crisis over making temporary Republican tax cuts permanent, you give the Republicans another temporary Republican tax cut that they can come back later to blackmail you into making permanent. Well, sir, at least that's the end of it. Except, of course, for the estate tax, what Republicans so happily call the death tax, which will be reduced from its 2009 levels. Huh? The money given by one dead rich person to some living rich persons will not be taxed up to $5 million. More than $5 million, and it's 35%, which is less than it was under the tax laws of President Bush's last fiscal year. Sir, you have given undeserved tax breaks, and you have carved them a little more deeply into the stone of law to rich people living and dead. And you want me to tell them which Democrat proposed this estate tax giveaway part? Blanche Lincoln. Blanche Lincoln, repudiated by nearly half the Arkansans in her own party, and then repudiated by 63% of the voters in Arkansas. Mr. President, you're listening to Blanche Lincoln? What? Were Bob Beckel and Pat Cadell unavailable? This president negotiates down from a position of strength better than any politician in our recent history. It is too late now to go back and ask why the president, and why the wobbly Democratic leadership, whiffed on their chance to force John Boehner to put his money where his mouth was. In September, Boehner said if he had no other option, of course he would vote to extend tax breaks only for the middle class. So the president and the Democrats gave him another option, naturally. 
But didn't extending the Bush tax cuts for the wealthy become necessary to get Republican support for extending the jobless benefits? Nonsense. Five times in the last two years, the Republicans have gone along with extending those jobless benefits, and they've done it without being bribed with tax cuts for the rich. Even now, Boehner's September confession and the GOP's unwillingness to take the blame for killing off jobless benefits offered an alternative blueprint for this president. Let the law expire as scheduled in 24 days. Let all the tax breaks go. And when the Republicans take over the House and try to pass them anew, if they are somehow not stopped in the Senate, veto anything that does not keep tax cuts for the middle class and unemployment benefits as the dog and perks for the rich as the tail. The GOP is still terrified of being blamed for cutting off the unemployed. You take that fact and you break them with it. There's only one possible rational explanation for this irrational and childish transaction. There are Republicans and Tea Partiers who are still intent on cutting off their noses despite their faces. The blind rage conservatives, for whom any compromise is disaster, just as for this president apparently no compromise is disaster. Maybe the reason the administration's numbers don't really add up in this deal is that the administration was too busy instead counting votes. And there really are enough on the far right to sink it. And the president winds up having his cake and eating it too. He proposed what he can call a tax compromise, and then he can have it derailed publicly and embarrassingly by the Republicans. Maybe the political calculus here exceeds both in priority and quality the real calculus. But I deeply doubt it. Yesterday I had an exchange with a very senior member of this administration who wanted to sell me on this deal. I pointed out that that was fine, except that, as I phrased it to him, frankly the base has just vanished. Well, he replied, then they must not have read the details. There, in a nutshell, is this administration. They didn't make a bad deal, we just don't understand it. Just as it was our fault, Mr. President, for not understanding your refusal of even the most perfunctory of investigations of rendition or domestic spying or the other crimes of the Bush administration, or why you have now established for those future administrations who want to repeat those crimes that the punishment for them will be nothing. Just as it was our fault, Mr. President, for not understanding Afghanistan. Just as we didn't correctly perceive, sir, the necessity for the continuation of Gitmo. Or how we failed to intuit, President Obama, your preemptive abandonment of single-payer in the public option. Or how we could not have foreseen your foot-dragging on Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Just as we shouldn't have gotten you angry at your news conference today and made all the moderate Democrats wonder why in the hell you get publicly angry so often at the liberals who campaigned for you and whether you might save just a touch of that sarcasm and the self-martyrdom for the Republicans. And of course, Mr. President, we totally betrayed your administration by not concluding our prayers every night, by saying, thank you for preventing another Great Depression. You are entitled to skate along on your own wonderfulness indefinitely, and if you get less than you could have on health care reform or taxes, well, that'll be okay. We're happy to pay 10000 bucks for a $300 car because, hey, it could have been 20000 right? And because we only expect you to do one thing correctly during a presidency, and you know you had pretty much cleared that obligation when it proved that you were indeed not John McCain. We're very sorry. In some sense, the senior member's remark about how we did not read the details is not utterly absurd. We have enabled this president and his compromises spinning within compromises. And now there are finally those within his own party who have had enough. In the Senate, the independent Mr. Sanders has threatened to filibuster this deal. He deserves the support of every American in doing so, as do Mr. Hoyer and Mr. Conyers and the others in the House. It is not disloyalty to the Democratic Party to tell a Democratic president he is wrong. It is not disloyalty to tell him he is goddamned wrong. 
It is not disloyalty for the 99ers and the 99ers-to-be to rally in the streets of Washington. It is not disloyalty to remind the president that he was elected by people to whom he had given a clear outline of what he would do for them. And if he does not steer out of the skid of what he is doing to them, he will not only not be reelected, he may not even be renominated. It is not disloyalty to remind him that we are not bound to an individual. We are bound to principles. If the individual changes or fails often and needlessly, then we get a new man or woman. None of that is disloyalty. It is self-defense. It is the acknowledgement that, as my hero Thurber wrote, you might as well fall flat on your face as lean over too far backward. That is what the base is saying to this president about his presidency. Well then, we must not have read the details. The Churchill quotation, as opposed to the quotation from that very senior member of your administration, Mr. President, is from October 5th of 1938. I don't want to make any true comparison to the historical event to which it related. The viewer can go ahead and look it up if they wish. I will confess I won't fight if anybody wants to draw a comparison between what you've done with our domestic policies of our day to what Neville Chamberlain did with the international politics of his. But the rest of what Churchill said, paraphrased, but only slightly paraphrased, bears repeating again. The terrible words have, for the time being, been pronounced against this administration. Thou art weighed in the balance and found wanting. And do not suppose that this is the end. This is only the beginning of the reckoning. This is only the first sip of a bitter cup which will be proffered to us year by year unless by a supreme recovery of moral health and political vigor. We arise again and take our stand for what is right. We haven't had a hymn since I can tell you when. We'd love a hen again With razzleberry dressing We've been so awful good From me down to the baby And we're not made of wood Or razzleberry gravy We'll have the Blessing and knowing we're together, knowing we're together, heart and hand. We'll make the whitest Christmas, the very brightest Christmas, a Christmas far more glorious than grand. You know, the President uh, Obama in his news conference on Tuesday announcing the uh, tax cut deal referred to uh, the situation he found himself in vis-a-vis the Republicans in the Senate as a hostage situation. And uh, now I'm being told we have to go to the network for a special broadcast, so we'll continue uh, the show moments from now. From CPR, Continental Public Radio, a special report. I'm Milton Getzler at the special report microphone in Washington. Normally each week at this time, CPR brings you the President's weekly Internet slash radio address. This week, in its place, the White House has just released the following set of remarks recorded by President Obama at an unknown location. And here's the President. Hello. I hope you're having a good weekend. When I spoke at my press conference earlier this week about the tax cut deal being akin to a hostage situation, many of the Washington pundits thought I was being metaphorical. Well, the joke appears to be on them as well as on me. My hostage takers have asked me to make this tape to let my family, as well as my base, know that I'm fine. I'm being well taken care of. 
I have plenty of food. I have the newspapers, the internet, and television. I'm not able to watch the news, but I am enjoying a Mythbusters marathon. I'm speaking not only for my hostage takers, but myself, when I say that this is not a situation that calls for any kind of force being used in an attempt to free me. Already the spectacle of Bernie Sanders' filibuster has done nothing but caused my, let's call them captors, to dig in their heels. That's not only bad for the carpet, it's bad for the country. It's never a good idea to negotiate with hostage takers, of course. But that's what I decided we had to do. They responded by actually taking me hostage. This is not only unprecedented, but of course it's unpresidential. Again, it's not a situation I think should be dealt with at this time by any kind of force. Lives are at stake here, and we're not talking about Afghan civilians. Calm and patience are what are called for. That's what I bring to the table. But unfortunately, I'm nowhere near the table. So I just want to use this tape to communicate to my advisors, my cabinet, my allies, that these people are deadly serious. They are dedicated to achieving their aim of a continuation of the Bush tax cuts for people making over $250,000 a year. And they believe that we can do nothing to stop them. I have to say that even if I weren't making this tape in a hostage situation, I, I, I agree with them. So I call upon my friends in Congress to live up to a deal that, admittedly, they have no part in reaching. It's a good deal because it will let me spend the holidays with my loved ones instead of in this what appears to be a best three-star hotel. To my family, my wife and my girls, I love you and I miss you very much. Don't worry, we'll have Christmas whenever I get home. The timber lobby has already promised to send another tree. I just ask everyone to be calm, to ask themselves, what would I do? And then agree to the hostage taker's demands. It may not be the best thing to do, but it's the right thing to do. Thanks very much. President Obama, in a remarkable set of remarks, recorded in an unknown location. Funds for this broadcast came from the Special Report Microphone Fund. I'm Milton Getzler in Washington, and this is CPR Continental Public Radio. We know what our initials stand for. I can see me bound and gagged Dragged behind the clown mobile You can treat me like a dog If you make me feel what others feel You can train me, you can drain me If you make me lose control I will be your prisoner, I will be your hostage home There is a quote that is attributed to Gandhi um, that probably was not said by Gandhi, but I don't know who did say it. So since everybody thinks he said it, he's maybe still the best reference. In any case, uh, it goes like this. First they ignore you, uh, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. I always found this um, very inspirational as a kid 
who felt like I was always going to be part of the uh, world that at best would be laughed at and, uh, and a typical day would be ignored. The idea, being, the idea was that, that this is how you as an outsider, you as somebody who is initially dismissible, you can eventually, if you are persistent and if you do your work well, you can achieve great things. You can, in fact, defeat the people who would dismiss and laugh at you and fight you. We are seeing right now the reverse of this. We are seeing quite literally this process playing out backwards with the presidency, this historic presidency that came about because of a brilliant and country-changing campaign. So this is, the, this is the Gandhi quote backwards for this presidency. First, in this case, for this presidency, first, you win. This presidency was not a culmination of a grand career in politics for Barack Obama. He was catapulted to the presidency by the brilliance of his campaigning and by a country that desperately wanted something dramatically different from what we'd had before. So first, he won. Then they fight you. Then, after he won, they fought him. If we're able to stop Obama on this, it will be his Waterloo. It will break him. That, of course, is Republican Senator Jim DeMint of South Carolina, charmingly plotting last year to politically destroy President Obama over health reform. Turns out health reform was not Barack Obama's Waterloo. No one thing has been Waterloo for this president. But Republicans have adopted the Jim DeMint Waterloo strategy for every fight, for every single piece of legislation of any significance. The goal is to stop it and stop it at any cost because any political advancement is advantage for this president and this president must be destroyed. It's not surprising. These are not surprising tactics. If you were a Republican congressional leader, you probably would have done the same thing. The way they decided to fight the president is by unified opposition to everything he proposes or that can be linked to him. And why do they want to do that? Because they want to defeat him. You told the National Journal, quote, the single most important thing we want to achieve is for President Obama to be a one-term president. So first he won, then they fought him. He got a lot of legislation passed in his first two years as president, but by fighting him in this way, the Republicans destroyed him in the midterms and in the first big test of whether those midterm losses had seriously wounded this president or whether he was going to come back stronger after that defeat. The president this week face-planted, calling a hastily arranged press conference to try to defend an inexplicable capitulation, even before his opponents have taken power, even with public opinion on his side. So first he won. Then they fought him, and now with the way he lost this fight, we have arrived at the part you would hope would be the worst of this process, but it isn't. What's happening now is that this presidency is at risk of becoming a punchline. It's not that he has lost a fight or two or three or four, it is that the very idea that he knows how to win or even wants to win has become a joke. He said, I will fight again in two years for these tax cuts to expire for the richest Americans. Was there a fight that the American public missed? Started off by winning, then they fought him, now it's punchline time. But the worst stage, the one that cannot be reversed, is when this president starts to be ignored. When what he wants, his political vision, becomes irrelevant. Which is not just a face value harm to this president's political power, it is actually a substantive harm to the presidency itself. Either the president of the United States matters, or he doesn't. And if the president cannot win when his party is the majority in Congress, if no one can even conceive of the president winning fights when his party is in the majority, let alone the minority in Washington, then the presidency itself starts to atrophy. It starts to disappear. 
The White House either figures out how to reverse this now, how to start winning now, how to assert the president's relevance now. They either do that or fill in the blank. In the metaphor, when you transition from them ignoring you to them fighting you, uh, to the you winning, what you're doing is you're moving from irrelevancy, you're moving from the wilderness into a place where you are in power. When you do that in reverse, you are starting in power and you are ending up irrelevant. again and I'm calling from John Kyle country um, you asked for a percentage a number for the Amazon issue which totally struck everyone out of left field um, I would say 10% you know if it was only 10% of your income let it go you know, that's that's where I would draw the line for me um, want to give a shout out to still out in Florida with the pug rescue Pugs make wonderful companion dogs. I'd recommend them for anyone who wants a really attentive dog, and especially somebody who's kind of like lonely. Um, and I'd just like to say that you know the shows have been great. Uh, Rachel Maddow explained the whole problem with the right so well in her self-circuit right-wing you know news cycle that. Um, I think it really illustrates how you can't even talk to these people. How do you talk to crazy? Uh, if I was somebody like Obama, I would actually not talk to crazy and do that publicly. Say, look, if this person is going to, you know, say I'm a Muslim and I'm not even born here on TV and then wants to have a discussion with me, that's not going to happen. Um, doing great. I can't believe you used to do all this stuff by yourself. I'm you know, really busy with the Young Turk stuff, and I appreciate, you know, your efforts and all the efforts of the other volunteers and the members, and um, have a good one. Hi, Jay, this is Cody in Virginia. Um, I was actually calling in response to the caller who called in about, um, I, I believe it was the author of Freakonomics who was talking about campaign spending or campaign fundraising not meaning as much. Um, well, the caller had a very good point, but I think an important distinction needs to be made that Freakonomics was written before the uh, Citizens United case, and so that kind of changed everything. Um, other than that, I've worked in campaign finance, and I actually think that the, the, the clip made a very good point, and that it's pretty accurate. Um, but still, I think Russ Feingold is a great example of how devastating Citizens United is to... Um, a lot of campaign finance rules and how it's kind of changed everything. Um, just thought that was interesting. Uh, keep up the good work. Thanks. Jay, this is Dave Dunn from Mobile, Washington. Um, listen to your December 8th episode. Wow. Uh, you have this amazing ability to get my blood boiling in like the best kind of way that I need to go out and do something. I really think folks like Best of the Left, Citizen Radio, Democracy Now, you're going to save us if if this little experiment in democracy that the United States started is going to succeed. 
it is the independent media that's going to make it go. Um, I feel compelled to call in on this particular issue uh, on this episode. I think WikiLeaks has kind of blown up on you. In regard to the Amazon question, I don't care. Um, keep them. It's, it's such a minor player in the entire WikiLeaks saga. I'm encouraging people out of passion to uh, organize a boycott around WikiLeaks, but when you come down to it, who has organized the political pressure on these businesses to move away from WikiLeaks? Who has done the, the blow-up of the legal situation with Mr. Sanja's uh, legal troubles in Sweden? Who's organizing essentially a political witch hunt to go after WikiLeaks in the first place? And I think all of these can be laid firmly at the feet of the Obama administration. And for anybody who can summon up the passion to get involved in an Amazon boycott, should really look at their priorities. And is an Amazon boycott going to help? Or is a primary challenger to Mr. Obama in 2012 going to be more effective in in stopping this kind of ridiculous uh, extra-legal activity? So those are my thoughts. Jay, we love you. Keep it up. Hi, Jay. This is John from St. Louis. And I want to suggest a charity people can donate to. Um, in St. Louis, there is a nonprofit organization that uh, deals with foster children. They're called the Foster and Adoptive Care Coalition. And every year they run a program called Little Wishes, where all the foster children can, uh, can sign up for Christmas presents that they would like. And people can go on uh, the coalition's website and grant those little wishes. So I just wanted to suggest that the listeners of Best of the Left, if they want to, could uh, help make Christmas a lot better for a St. Louis foster kid. So they can just go to foster-adopt.org uh, and donate from the website. Thanks. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called in to leave a message. If you would like to leave a comment, question, activist call to action, or suggest a charity people should be donating to this holiday season, the number dial is 206-202-3410. And I just want to say about this episode that this has been an incredible outlier in the production of this podcast. And I just want to give you a little insight about that. Uh, usually it takes several days, usually multiple weeks to put together enough material on one given topic in order to make a show about it. But with this uh, tax discussion, uh, debate and compromise, so much material was generated almost overnight, just in the span of you know three or four days instead of a couple of weeks that I could have made two and a half episodes about it so far. And we're still in the early, uh, you know, early days of this week. More will come uh, in, in the beginning and middle of this week. And, uh, and so I just want to give you guys an insight about that. Um, so consider, I mean, you heard what people had to say about it, but consider not just what was being said, but how much was said about it. And, you know, as forcefully as it was said, I mean, it's been a really, really long time since I've seen such instant and overwhelming reaction uh, to any one thing that was done by our government. And so um, I found that interesting. And I, I thought that, you know, maybe you had seen coverage of this and thought, well, this is getting a lot of coverage. But as someone who monitors the media 
you know, nonstop for a living. Uh, I just wanted to give you my insight on that um, because maybe it was interesting. Maybe it wasn't. I don't know. So I let this episode go long because of how much content there was. Uh, there's going to be a part two because of how much content there was and how, frankly, I mean, the story is not over. There's more uh, t- to be said about it and, and the uh, story is evolving all the time. So I hope to um, get as much of the uh, most up-to-date date information available in the very next episode that comes out. Uh, so we'll all see how that goes. Until then, I just want to thank supporters of the show, uh, volunteers, uh, Mike, Colette, Todd, uh, uh, Laura has been kicking ass, uh, a whole collection of mats in there have been doing um, all kinds of, of volunteer work for me, so I really, really appreciate that from all of you guys. And I want to thank a couple of members. Gregory S. signed up for his monthly membership back on August 12th, making him a leftist on the new membership scale. And Matthew S. signed up on October 1st uh, for a yearly membership, making him a socialist. Huge thanks to uh, Matt and Greg and all of the members who make the show possible. You guys know I couldn't do it without you. Everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it. Everyone can stay tuned into the show and help spread the word online by joining us over on Facebook and Twitter. And Facebook's been blown up recently just because I've been using it a little bit more recently. So there have been some really interesting discussions going on. I definitely encourage you to check that out. For details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all of that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you 10 times a month, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor